So I spent last week doing a review so that we could be brought up to speed on the issue of worship and just what we've been covering for the last few months. And, and what I kept promising was we'll actually get to the subject of worship and the actual principles of worship. And so that's what we're here to actually do this morning. And so I have drawn much of what I have here from Ligon Duncan's class on worship, on the subject of worship. He was my professor at RTS, and I just went back and found the class that he taught, and I went, what did he teach me again? And I wrote that out, a lot of it, and then I supplemented and added to it and you know, put my own, own spin on things. So a lot of what you're going to hear is either from that book or from the book Reformation Worship by Jonathan Gibson. He's got two chapters at the beginning that are rock solid. Hughes Oliphant Old has a, a book on worship. It's called Worship Reformed According to Scripture. Um, that has been an incredibly helpful book to me. Uh, all of these are drawn from other sources. So this is me taking other people's work and sort of showing you how I've been impacted and where it's come from. So uh, just know that if you hear something really good and really helpful, it wasn't me. So first, I think we need to start off by distinguishing between worship and corporate worship. If you want to start off, you want to talk about worship versus corporate worship. I was actually just on Friday night, we were... I was hanging out and I, I met somebody new that I hadn't met before and he asked me you know, about uh, the idea of worship in all of life. And it got me thinking that when we talk about worship, sometimes we can mingle together these ideas of worship and corporate worship. We know that our lives are meant to be worshipful. We know that our lives are meant to be lived for the glory of God. Uh, we know that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so you know, we might ask the question, isn't all of our life supposed to be worship? And the answer is yes. In one sense, all of our life is supposed to be worship. On the other hand, we also know that in Scripture, God has commands that relate to the way that his, his people, when they gather together, worship. And so we want to distinguish between worship in that broad, general sense and corporate worship specifically. And specifically in this class, in this Sunday school, we're going to be talking not about how we can glorify God in general in our lives. That would be worship as a lifestyle, and instead asking the question, what is corporate worship supposed to be like? What is worship supposed to be like when the body of Christ that's called out of this world are assembled together in one place and we're gathering together to worship God, specifically on Sunday mornings, let's say. And so the Reformed thought a great deal about this topic. As we saw already, we've already been talking about this fa- the fact that the Reformation itself was a Reformation of worship. Specifically, a reformation of corporate worship. And so they saw the sickness of the Roman church in part in the way that it was manifesting in corporate worship. So then they said, we need to change. What are some principles that we want to look at and that we want to have guide us as we're moving forward? So I'm going to give you five principles here and you can see them already. So it's totally spoilery. Uh, maybe I need something to like slowly reveal the things so that there's more of a mystery to it. But there's no mystery here. The first thing I want to say is that worship, corporate worship should be according to scripture. Corporate worship should be guided by, actually I'm going to push this to the forefront here so that it's not behind the pulpit or the lectern as much. But is that true only of corporate worship or worship as well? I'm just talking about corporate worship. I'm not excluding other, I'm not excluding the other. So... All of our lives should be guided by scripture, but we're talking about corporate worship. Corporate worship should be according to scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.17 says, scripture is breathed out by God that it's profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, If you look at Psalm 119, I talked about this this morning, or at least I kind of hinted at it. The Psalm 19 is this lengthy exposition on the greatness of God's word. Um, How can we think to worship God without being guided by what he's said and without hearing what he says to us directly from his mouth? The idea of worshiping and ignoring or not at least at least not even thinking to ask him what would please him seems like a massive error. Um, Terry Johnson does a really good job of summarizing the ways that, that the worship is meant to be Bible filled. And so one of the things he says, actually five of the things he says is, In worship, it's Bible-filled because in worship, we read the word. In worship, we preach the word. In worship, we pray the word. In worship, we sing the word. In worship, we see the word. How do we see the word? I'm I'm cheating. I'm pointing. (laughs) Yeah, we see the word in the sacraments, right? If... Um, if this, there's a tangible way, you know, this is not just a spiritual exercise, but it has also got a physical element to it that it's also spiritual. And so we see that in the sacraments. But is it true also that you can see it in living epistles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like li- our lives are living, living sermons, you know. Um, and so there are other ways that we see it too. But the yeah, we're, I'm just picking the really blatant and obvious stuff. Okay. Um, second, worship should be in the name of Christ. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So right, he's giving actually a very broad command for all our lives. Worship as a way of life. But that means that if we did worship and we didn't worship in the name of Christ, that would be really bad. Right? Because... <laughs> If we're going to worship and we're not going to worship in the name of Christ, but the rest of our lives are supposed to be done in the name of Christ, that just doesn't fit together. And so when we worship, we must worship in the name of Jesus. We're told to pray in the name of Jesus. The apostolic preaching was in the name of Jesus in Acts 5.41. We're told that our almsgiving and good works are to be in the name of Christ. Um, To do something in someone's name is to do it as the agent of, of someone else. It is to do something in the service of someone else. When we pray in the name of Christ, we are praying in his service. And then this is something that Hughes Oliphant Old says. He says, Christian worship is in the name of Christ because worship is a function of the body of Christ. And as Christians, we are all one body. Um, and so I think it goes without saying, Christian worship, it should be done in the name of Jesus. Um, third, worship should be a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, think of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. Uh, and he's speaking to the Samaritan woman and he tells her, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in... Fill in the blank. Yeah, spirit and truth. So he says, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Um, one of the things that Rob Rayburn Sr. points out, he's got a wonderful book. I think it's called Come Let Us Worship. Um, and he points this out in the book that this is the only place in Scripture where we are told that the Father seeks something. Which I thought, I thought, man, it seems like the Father would seek more in Scripture. And yet this is the one place where he's spoken of as seeking something. And what is the thing that he seeks? He's seeking worshipers. He's seeking worshipers. And according to Jesus, essential to the worship that the Father is seeking is that it be done in spirit. 
Um, so Hughes Oliphant Old, again, I'm going to keep quoting him. Uh, Hughes Oliphant Old says, Christian worship is inspired by the Spirit, empowered, empowered by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, purified by the Spirit, and bears the fruit of the Spirit. Christian worship is Spirit-filled. This is one thing that I grew up in with a charismatic background. I grew up with very Pentecostal adjacent sort of people in my life. And um, my father, before he died, I did become a Calvinist. And my dad told me, he said, Calvinists don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And he was very upset that I wasn't going to believe in the Holy Spirit anymore. (laughs) And like, so maybe my whole life is a big reaction to that. Um, But I really, 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 really want to push back and be like, no, reformed worship is spirit centered from top to bottom. But the thing is, and this maybe goes a little beyond by what, what I intended to say, but there is a such thing as um, missing out on the work that the Spirit is doing. The work of the Spirit is bringing glory to the Father and the Son. He doesn't seek to bring attention to himself. You read scripture and he, he cares about the glory of the Father and the, and the glory of the Son and is not drawing attention to himself. And so I think it's important for us to give attention to the Spirit but also I think we dishonor him and we ruin his mission if we're constantly obsessed with him. Um, and so all of these things, though, would not happen without the spirit and without his help. So we could fall off one side or the other. And I would just say we want to be careful. Um, this is true of but when we talk about Christian worship being spirit filled, this is true of the preaching of the word. Right. It's true of the sacraments. It's true of evangelism, right? We don't think, we don't dare to do something God has called us to apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, You just read scripture and you see all these descriptions of the Spirit. The Spirit is our helper. And so our worship has to be a work of the Spirit as well. Moving in our hearts and ensuring that we don't just hear the word spoken, which is always a danger of just hearing the thing and having our intellects engaged. But... We, but, but it's not, it doesn't seek down to the level of the heart. And that is the work that the Spirit does. The Spirit ensures that, that what we do penetrates the heart so that it's done in faith and not just going through the motions. Fourth, this, uh, worship should be simple. Now, this doesn't mean the worship should be filled with excessive... Or what I'm saying when I say that it should be simple is that worship should not be filled with excessive additions or distractions. Um, this is another way of saying that worship should be based on God's command in Scripture. Um, it should be no more complex and crowded or convoluted than Scripture tells us that it should be. Um, if we do our best to include only what God commands us to include, then the service will be simpler. It will be simpler than if we do many things that we can think of that would be beneficial, but we don't find them commanded in the Scripture. And so, I think the command. I think I think the idea of simple simple worship is also a function of what we're going to talk about later, but probably won't get to today, which is specifically the regulative principle. Or we might get to it, but we won't get very far into it. Um, if you're observing the regular principle of necessity, you're going to have simpler worship. Um, fifth, worship is to be God-centered in its focus and in its content, not just in its focus and its content. Um, Edmund Clowney. Yes, Micah. Yeah. Do you have clear and evidence for why uh, worship should be simple? 
Yes, but it's in the section on regular principle. So, <laughs> this is, by the way, this is the hardest. I actually, I actually arranged this entire thing totally upside down the first time. I was going to start off by talking about the regulative principle, and then I realized that we needed this language of elements, forms, and circumstances, and so I realized that I had to do this part first. So. Um, this might be one of those things like you read a mystery story and then you get to the end and the whole story makes sense. And then you go back and you read it all over again and the whole thing makes sense. I don't know. That might be some of that. So uh, worship should be God-centered in its focus and in its content. Now, I, know I don't have a Bible verse for this, but I'm telling you the whole Bible is God-focused and God-centered. And so I am totally cheating and saying, read your Bibles. Um, Edmund Clowney says this. He says, God draw, God's glory draws our worship and God's will directs our worship. God's glory draws our worship and God's will directs our worship. I, I love that. Edmund Clowney has a whole book on the church, which I really recommend as well. Um, but this is why we're not allowed to invent ways to worship God as a church body. Um, one of the implications of a God-centered focus in worship is that it won't be seeker-centered. Centered. Um, so Harry Reader, um, Harry Reader just passed away this last year. Um, he is one of the fathers in our denomination uh, and uh, was the pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian Church, which, if I'm not mistaken, is it the largest church in the PCA? Yeah. Um, so he, he's just been around. He's, he's been around for a while. And Harry Reader, he said this. He says, how can it be a worship service if it's seeker-centered instead of God-centered? Um, how can it be a worship service if it's seeker-centered instead of God-centered? Now, what does that not mean, though? It doesn't mean that worship should be unnecessarily repellent to unbelievers, right? We're not looking to drive people away. But seekers are not the audience of our worship, right? Seekers are not the audience. And actually, the congregation here is not the audience of our worship either, right? None of the people in the room are actually the audience for worship. Instead, we don't worship our we don't direct our worship to each other. God is the audience for our worship services. We do it for him. Um, I I hate to I hate to give this example, but I I remember um, in in Mississippi we used to go and uh, do joint services with another church in town, and we had a service where. Um, during the service, it was the evening worship at their church. Um, I was allowed to preach, and they basically did their service the style that they do it. And at one point, they, the congregation stood and they turned and they faced us uh, from our church, and they sang a song to us. And it was incredibly sweet, incredibly generous, and kind of them. But it was also them singing to us, you know, <laughs> and we were the audience of their singing. And I remember being very uncomfortable with it, but I chose to take it for what it was meant to be. I chose to, to say, you know what they're trying to say? They're trying to say we're together, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we took it for what it was. But, but we really should not have been sung to, in my opinion, <laughs> um, because God is meant to be the audience. God is meant to be the one that, that the service is about. Um, when we do worship for God and we see God as the audience of our worship, it's transformative. It, it changes our mindset. It changes our mindset about how we come into worship. It changes our mindset about the kind of stuff we might complain about, you know, um, because we sing for God, not ourselves, um, not even for one another. Um, we pray to God, not one another. 
we respectfully listen and hear from God in worship. Um, I have a book in the office by Jonathan Cruz. He's got one chapter called Jesus, Jesus Preaches a Sermon. And it's his chapter on the preaching in the church. And his point there is that even in the sermon, it is Jesus coming to us and saying what he wants us to hear. Um, and so what I want you to see is that worship is meant to be God-centered. Church is meant to be God-centered. It's all about God. And um, for many Christians today, that would be a really big mindset shift, wouldn't it? Because, you know, I remember when I lived in Phoenix. Phoenix, when I lived in Phoenix, we were constantly bouncing from church to church because we were far from every church. We lived sort of outside of town and we had to drive in and we never seemed to find somewhere steady to go to. So we saw so many churches. And uh, I am guilty of leaving church and saying, I didn't get much out of that. You know, you ever leave? I won't ask you if you ever leave. (laughs) You can answer for yourselves. Do I ever leave church and go, I didn't get much out of that today? And what if we left church going, I wonder wonder if God was pleased with that today. What a different mindset we would have. Just that's so God-centered. And it's so radically not us-centered. So... What I want to do as we talk about worship, though, and I'm not saying this is comprehensive, but I think this is, these are the basics. This gets us started, at least. What I want to do is give us a nomenclature for how to talk about worship and specifically how to think about how we talk about worship. And I want to introduce these three terms here. If we understand these three terms, we will have the categories to talk about worship, I think, in a way that's helpful um, but also that is, is also steps ahead of what much of the world thinks about when they think about worship. So um, when we talk about worship, we use language to help us so that we can speak with clarity. And historically, discussions of worship have centered around these three terms, um, elements, form, and circumstances. Elements, form, and circumstances. These are the three words. I will just underline them. Uh, so let's just talk about all of them. What is an element of worship? An element of worship is the what of worship. It is, the, it is a scripturally commanded feature of biblical worship. Um, let me give you examples of the what of worship. The things that we do in worship. The preaching of the word would be an element of worship. Prayer in the service would be an element of worship. Singing would be an element of worship. Reciting the creeds would be an element of worship. Giving offerings in worship would be an element of worship. Uh, Taking oaths and vows. Now you might think oaths and vows, we don't do those in service. Well, we do. We received new members just a few weeks ago. And in that service, all of these people made a promise before God that they would do X, Y, and Z, right? We gave all of these things. In other words, we glorify God by doing that. Um, the same is true of ordination. If you have an ordination service, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Grace, Grace URC just had either they're having or they did have already an ordination service for Josh File, who's coming on board as, uh, I think, an associate pastor there. And they did that during the morning worship service. I was sad that they did it in the morning service because I couldn't go to it. Um, I was glad to be here. It was, you, know, you want to do it all. You want to be everywhere. Um, when we baptize people, there are baptismal vows, um, there are marriage vows, um, ordination vows. All of these are different vows that are done during the service. 
Um, those are elements of worship. The observance of the sacraments. Those are elements of worship. And so these are biblically prescribed components of worship that are given to us in the word of God. They are commanded, prescribed, appointed, and ordained in the word. Yes. So you find them in a few places. One of them is you find it by example specifically, like in the book of Philippians. Uh, you find, I think, in Galatians. Um, I don't know. I, might, I didn't write anything down, so I might need somebody to swoop in and help me out. But um, the earliest evidence we have is that Christians right away began reciting creeds about Christ during worship services. And so um, – I am sure that I can give you a text, and I, it feels very careless that I didn't. So it is. Yeah. That's why I said it. Yeah. So, and what actually what I'm not doing right now is going through and showing you all of those things and how they come from the text. I want to do that as we go along, but I'm trying to give you examples of what these things are. I want to go from elements, though, to forms and talk about forms because forms are the way we do the elements. Forms are the way that we do the elements. So you have this thing in Scripture, and it's biblical to do it. It's biblical to do it when we're together. But how? What's the way that you actually do it? How do we execute on the things that God has given us to do? Um, You might ask it like this, or at least this is a connected question. What's the order you do those things in, right? Um, we know what God has said to do, but how should we do it? Bible doesn't supply an order of worship. Um, one of the books I have is called Reformation Worship. It is one of the biggest books I own. And it is just a, a, a list of different liturgies that have been used throughout churches in history. And what you find is that there have been a lot of variety in terms of the order of the way things have been done in church services before. So what you find is there's a reason for that diversity. The Bible doesn't give us a specific order and a beginning and an end. And here's what you do next. And here's what you do next. Uh, And yet it gives us the content of the worship service. It tells us what we should do, but it doesn't tell us the how of how we are, the way that we're supposed to do those things necessarily. As an example... Before, historically in this church, we've had the confession of sin after the sermon, but before we have the Lord's Supper. We made the decision as a session to move it before the sermon. Did we have a biblical justification for that? Some passage in scripture that said, make sure you do the confession of sin before the sermon. No, of course not. Um, Instead, uh, we used wisdom. We used... uh, um, biblical rationality and thoughtfulness, but we didn't have something to tell us in the same way we have elements that tell us we should have the Lord's Supper, right? No one questions that we should have the Lord's Supper when we gather together. Uh, and yet we didn't have a text to tell us how to do a form. So how do you decide on a form if it's not required to be biblically mandated the way an element should be? Well, we work through the forms of worship in conversation with church history and with the Reformed tradition. In other words, we work through these things, not in isolation on our own. There are reasons why most Reformed churches do not lead off the the service immediately with a sermon, for example, right? Um, Listening to the reasoning from the history of the church can be valuable to think about that sort of thing, right? 
Even though we don't find a verse in scripture that says you must begin corporate worship by reading a passage of scripture where God commands us to come before him and worship, there's great wisdom in the fact that the reformers began to do this. And so as we learned, the call to worship was not so much, uh, not used, was not used for much of church history till the time of the Reformation. I don't know if you remember me talking about that, but uh, the, much of church history began with simply a call to worship of some sort, some reminder that we're here to worship God. Uh, later on, uh, during the Reformation, it was decided that there are plenty of scriptures where God actually calls us to worship him. And so it became very normal to start off the service with that. Um, but the reason why we do these things is not because we want to create these things all on our own. There's a, there's a biblical reason to start the service that way. I'm persuaded it's a, a good way to begin the service. But if you don't, it's not a heresy. Uh, yeah, Micah. Forms are oftentimes built on scriptural patterns, though. So yes. we see the people uh, being taught from the word in Nehemiah and then being led to uh, confess their sins. So if you're in a church service where you're choosing to do that, you're following a biblical form. And other times in Paul's letters, he calls upon people to confess, and then he goes through the bulk of his teaching and prescribes to them. And so you, you have a biblical form for why you might choose to confess your sin first prior to being fed upon the word. Mm-hmm. All of our forms would attempt to follow structure seen in the scriptures. Uh, yeah. And so it's not, it's not simply man-centered wisdom, but it, it's yeah. a reflection upon the scripture. Yeah, our, our forms should still be guided by biblical principles, but that doesn't mean you'll have a direct command you could appeal to that says this is the way to do things. So that's a, good, that's a very good thing to include and mention. Um, our worship, but here's, here's the reality. The worship service has to start somehow, right? You have to find a way to begin the service. And so all of the elements of worship have to happen somehow. And that's where the forms become so important because it's like, okay, let's get going on this. <laughs> let's not be paralyzed waiting for a divinely granted order of service to be handed down from heaven. Um, when I was in class, one of, one of the dictums that Ligon would use was this. He would say, there is more than one right way to do it. Uh, when he's talking about forms, he said, there's more than one right, right way to do it. And what he meant was, what he meant was the elements of worship should come from scripture, but there's freedom in the forms that those elements take, right? The elements of worship have to come from scripture. The forms have more freedom attached to them than the elements do. And so this isn't relativism. This is recognition that we should stand where God speaks and then we should be gracious where there's freedom. We should stand where God speaks, but we should be gracious where there's freedom. Um, We should be careful about being overly prescriptive and strict toward others where scripture isn't. So if we if we go to a church and they don't do things the same way that we they do them at our church. But you also know that what they're still doing is within the range of what God has told us in his word. Then then we cut them slack and we have Christian charity. Um, and that's something that I've grown. I mean, maybe it's a function of me growing up and, and sort of a charismatic background and going to every kind of church on earth. But I kind of feel like uh, I feel like t- uh, Paul sometimes where Paul says I can live in all circumstances. 
And I've had to survive in all circumstances. I haven't always lived in places where there was a reformed church, right? So uh, sometimes I would go to the church with the worship band and uh, I wouldn't sing very loud because I didn't know the songs and couldn't figure them out, right? But you sort of learn to function somewhere where God's word is proclaimed, even if it's not your taste, right? Um, uh, music is one of the biggest ways that the forms end up showing their face where you start to see that there's a lot of diversity on this, right? Some churches like modern worship songs. Some churches like hymnody. Some churches, in fact, it seems like most churches today try to do a mix of both. Um, if you, if, assuming the lyrics are solid, is one form of worship right and one form of worship sinful? I think that would be very hard to make that argument. Um, I could make an argument for why we use hymnody and psalms here at Evergreen, uh, but not modern worship. I could, I could make the argument for why that is. Um, and it would be the sort of argument I would give with other forms where I'm going to have good rationality and reasons for it. Um, I think that we're commanded to use psalms in worship. Um, I don't think we're commanded to only use psalms in worship. So I can give a biblical argument for that. Um, but our preference here is for tried and true hymnody that has stood the test of time. And we use inspired psalms and we do use some modern songs that we think will stand the test of time, the sort of things that are singable, right? But I wouldn't tell somebody it's sinful to use instruments other than the piano or the organ or the violin or the flute, right? Uh, nor is it sinful to sing newer music. Um, yet we may have reasons why we don't use them here. Those reasons might be cultural, right? In some cultures, just as an example, the use of drums may be seen as something that's reverent. I can imagine some cultures around the world where using drums is something that can be done in reverence. Uh, I have a hard time thinking of drums as a reverent thing in our own culture, but there may be some cultures where it is, right? But I'm just using that as an example to say the argument shouldn't be, is it sinful? If not, then we do it, right? The argument should be, is there biblical guidance that would help us navigate what is wise for us to do in our own context, and so, you know, again, you have Ligon's dictum where it come, when it comes to forms of worship, there's more than right, one right way to do it, right? I'm just using music as an example, of course. But there's a second part to Ligon's dictum. And the second part of his dictum is, but there are more wrong ways than right ways to do it. <laughs> there are more wrong ways than right ways to do it. Um, in other words, when it comes to forms of worship, it's still not the Wild West. <laughs> it's... Just because you got an argument doesn't mean that it is a good thing to do. Cultural considerations come in. Prudential considerations come in. Historical considerations come in. Um, one of the examples that Ligon gives is the Anglican tradition. In the Anglican tradition, having kneelers in the pews and kneeling during the service feels like reverent, serious, meaningful, historic worship. We actually had Presbytery um, a few weeks ago and in the service they had kneelers and they encouraged us to use them if we wanted and you know I uh, historically speaking to Presbyterians kneelers sound like something papists do and so there might be a historical reason why you wouldn't use kneelers in your church service um, I wondered if it was just me I reached out to some Presbyterian friends and just did an un very unofficial polling and I asked them what they thought of using kneelers and one of them put it this way, and I thought it was so well said that I just wanted to include it. But he said, to me, kneeling feels Roman Catholic and doles the sense of my ability in Christ 
to come before God and the freedom that Jesus gives in the gospel? Why am I still coming before God groveling as though Christ hasn't redeemed me and welcomed me to pray to him? So uh, does that mean it's sinful to kneel and pray? No, but, and not everyone feels that way. For a lot of people, the idea of kneeling during the worship service and praying would be very meaningful, but it does help to explain why historical considerations come in and in a Presbyterian context, we might not do it, right? But there's no, there's no Bible verse that says, don't kneel to pray, or you must kneel when you pray. In scripture, actually, you find the example of people standing with their hands out in prayer and with their faces up to God. And oftentimes we think, well, I have to close my eyes and look down. But you find that lots of different postures are employed in scripture when people pray. Um, In other words, there's more than one right way to pray. Kneeling is not a bad posture to pray in. The decision in a church to kneel or not kneel has historical and cultural considerations involved. Um, Americans, Brazilians, Japanese, Afghani, German Christians may all pray differently. Prayer is important. The form is a minor point of comparison to making sure that we actually do what's commanded. Uh, If you went to a worship service where no prayer was taking place, you would think, what kind of worship service is this at all? Um, I've been to a church that didn't have have prayer in the service, which is just weird, but it's true. Um, The Lord's Supper, another example of forms. I bet you all have participated in Lord's Supper somewhere besides this church, and they probably did it differently, right? I mean, I have seen it done every way that it could possibly be done. I, I once went to a church where they had um, just a station up at the front. And I know what you think I'm about to say, everybody lined up to get it. No. During the service, they would just tell you that whenever you felt like it, you could come up and take some. Uh, and so, I, you know, and, and then there's, there are other churches where... They do it Scottish style and they have long tables set up in the middle of the service and people come and they sit around the table and they have the Lord's Supper around a table. I mean, every way you can think to do the Lord's Supper, it has probably been done before. Why? Because God prescribes for us to have the element of the Lord's Supper and he doesn't give us the forms. He doesn't give us the forms. We have biblical we have biblical rationale that should be a part of our decisions, but there is more freedom than we sometimes think of on these things. Um, yes? You could call me Adam. I'm not even sure how to ask this, but what we use now for communion is really pathetic. I don't know. I don't know what to say. You're not a fan of the bread. Well, no, but I mean, not, not this church, but the whole little piece of bread and a little bit of wine oh, yeah. feels very fake. It's, it, it, as opposed the to, tiny portions, you mean, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, as opposed to what it originally was, right? Wasn't it like an actual meal? And So, actually, I think we, I think I will, oh, I hate to punt by doing this. But I would encourage you to, I'll try to find which lesson it was where I talked about this, but I actually talked about this. One of the things Paul talks about is that the the Corinthians came together and they had a meal, a physical meal. And Paul is insistent with them that what they're observing there is not the Lord's Supper. That they should actually go and eat an actual meal at home. 
And so I made the case that actually what they should have been doing is something closer to what we are doing, where we have a piece of it, we have a little bit of it. But if you're talking about actually having a hearty meal, like during the service, then that would not, I do not think that that is what the early church was practicing. So, um, but I think it's a fair question still. But I'm also pretty sure you weren't here when I was doing that. So I would, I would recommend going back and checking that out. Um, but when we, we talk about forms of worship, um, there are still biblical boundaries. Controversial example. Um, it's become more common. I'll have to end with this, actually. Um, it's become more common in the last 40 years for people to use video clips during preaching. How many of you have ever been to a church where there was a video clips during a sermon? I actually haven't. I, I, I'm, I should let one of you talk about it. Um, so... Everything that we do has, has consequences. There are arguments for why this is a bad idea, even though it's a form of preaching, right? I, um, I, I did, here's, here's something I saw in preaching that I had never seen before. I went to a church where they had dueling preaching. So they had two people at the front and they, and they, sat, at, um, they sat around a, a coffee table and they each had a cup of coffee. And then one of them would say something for five minutes, and then the other would start talking for five minutes. And it really was not an exposition of scripture. It was more of a conversation that they wanted to have. And this was, this was what they had in the place where you would have the preaching of the word in the service. Um, technically, it's a form of worship, and yet I think there are biblical arguments to be made that maybe that is a step beyond, right? Yeah. As far as the video goes, I will just give you my take, which is because I'm a fan of Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, the medium is the message that originated with Marshall McLuhan. Neil Postman was a a disciple of his, as far as I know, not Christians. Um, But the point of saying the medium is the message is that often the way we do something communicates things that we may or may not intend. And it ends up affecting the way that we end up receiving the message that is being communicated. Um, Michael, you were going to say something? Did you want me to finish my thought? <laughs> so we can think of foolish ways to do elements of worship, even though technically we're doing the element and it's biblical. Um, and we're going to get to this in a little while, but one of the things, and we'll have to do it next week, but one of the things we want to make sure of is that the forms and the circumstances, which I'm not even getting to today, we want to make sure that the forms and the circumstances don't end up canceling out the element. They don't end up overwhelming the element. We want whatever form and circumstance we end up doing, it needs to be something that brings out the element because God gave it to us, right? So some churches, I think what happens is there is an embarrassment or a fear that people won't be excited by the element. And so they think we need to do something to take this element and make it more, something greater, something bigger. And so that's why I think sometimes you get videos in the sermons or it's why you sometimes end up getting these inventive forms of preaching because there's this fear. No one's gonna get this the way, that it, the way that it took place. And so we have to kind of dress it up and make it more interesting. Um, and so... Whatever we do with our farms and circumstances should be complementary to the elements. That's what I want to say. Yeah, Micah.
Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't, you had to splatter the blood and the sacrifice on top of the ark. And if you didn't do it, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. So, so why the disparity between elements and forms both being commanded for Old Testament worship and elements being commanded and forms being left open, mm -hmm. more open? I, I bet I can only give you a partial answer to this, and maybe you have an answer to your own question. You don't have a que you don't have an answer to your question. Oh, he's shaking his head. Well, one thing I would say is that the spe specificity of the laws of worship in the Old Testament are very intentional because all of it's meant to be a shadow of Christ, and it's meant to get us to Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, you have freedom in the worship in part because you're not creating a culture. And a society around that worship. Instead, you've got worship now that can go from one culture to another, right? In the Old Testament, you are creating a specifically, intentionally uh, ethnic and religious group. And that is formed around specific actions. By the time you get to the New Testament, that gospel is meant to be taken out into all the world. And so what might speak to one cultural group is not going to speak to another. So I, I think that the New Testament just brings more freedom. I think there's more freedom in the New Testament where they set up the boundaries, they set up the elements, they tell you what needs to happen. And then biblically speaking in the New Testament, I think part of the reason you see that freedom that starts to come in is because the specificity of the law is no longer present. So you've got the message of the law, you've got a lot of important things from the law, and yet at the same time, you also have this opening up that takes place. So... That's my, that's my off the top of my head, and if I wrote it out, I'd probably think of a better answer. Uh, answer. But what I'm going to do now is bring us to an end, and then you can come up and ask me questions afterwards because I'm trying to do my very best to end on time, but I don't always succeed. But we will, we'll resume, though, talking about circumstances and try to keep stay on track. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we thank you at once that you tell us what would please what will please you in worship and at the same time we also recognize that uh, there is freedom that we have in Christ I pray that we would not abuse the freedom that you give to us but rather that we would ask always what is it that pleases you I pray that we would be God-centered in our worship that even next week as we come to worship you that we would ask the question what would please God this week what would please God as we gather for worship. And would you even start us, even now, uh, having our hearts and minds set that way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.